The teaching text for today is James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also, com- also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into the court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of to him who you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're getting there. We're working on that, thanks be to God. We are in the midst of a series called Faith That Works, which really walks us through the book of James, just one section at a time, which is great. We're going to be in this book, including our introduction week uh, for 11 weeks total. Uh, But really, James is one of those authors and really a unique book in the New Testament because he's really like the New Testament book of wisdom because he he has some themes that run through it, but a lot of his ideas, he jumps from one thought to another. And so you can really jump in and out anywhere in this book. So if you're new today, you don't have to catch up for four weeks or anything like that. You can just jump right in where we are. We call this series Faith That Works sort of as a subtitle because um, it's, it's about a faith that works in our lives. And James talks a lot about a faith that works in the sense that it works itself out as we live our lives. It works itself out through us. It's a faith that works in our lives as we trust in God. It's real. It's something we can stand on, and it works itself out in our lives. So there's really two meanings behind that, uh, which, which is awesome as we think about how faith works in our lives. Now, I want to take you back before we jump into this passage that Roosh just read for us. I want to take you back to high school, if you can go there for a second. Some of you are there right now. Some of you are not even there yet. But if you uh, have a memory of high school, um, that means you had a pretty relatively healthy experience. If you don't, it's because you've repressed that experience. Um, Actually, a lot of people repress their middle school experiences. That's a true thing. I'm a former youth pastor, so I would know. Um, That's what I was taught at conferences. We we can repress some of those memories because it's a very difficult time. And in high school, one of the reasons it's so difficult is because as high schoolers, we tend to separate ourselves into these various cliques, into these different groups, you know, and depends on your interests, depends on your social status, and, you know, every, every school, every generation seems to have some version of these cliques that, that form. Usually they take the shape of, you know, you've got the jocks, the sporty type, 
You know, you've got like the actors and the actresses, you've got the, the, the theater group, you've got somebody who's associated with music, whether that's punk or if that's uh, emo or if it's like a goth group or metalheads or whatever. Like you've got all of these different groups and they, 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 form, the, they form the school, right? And they're these little subgroups and that's how, that's how it gets organized. We see that and we watch it demonstrated generation after generation as we walk through um, and as we watch people go through school. It's just how it works. And, and somehow we don't leave that completely behind, do we? This is something that starts even younger than high school. Sometimes we see this starting on the playground, in kindergarten and in first grade. And um, as we walk through life and as we see this, this take place, we see it even as adults as well. We form these groups, we stick in them, and we separate ourselves. And we experience favoritism, either in the positive or the negative. Once again, James says in verse 1, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and the poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? As James works through this passage, we see all of these ways that favoritism contradicts something that is of the character of God. And the first thing is that favoritism contradicts God's standards. It contradicts his standards. It contradicts who he is. It contradicts how he looks at his creation. It contradicts how he views people, how he divides lines. He doesn't do it the same way that we do. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, Israel's about to get a new king. They've had their first king, Saul. He looked the part, right? He was super tall. He was taller than everyone else in all of Israel. And that, that meant he was going to be a great leader, right? Because he was tall and strong, and he, he really looked the part. But what does God say to Samuel as he's choosing the next king and and all of these, these uh, brothers of David line up and they walk through. Sons of Jesse walk through one at a time. The first one, Elihu comes and he's like, this must be him. This must be the next king. Because look how tall and strong he is. He looks like a king. And God says to him, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. When the world judges, which the world will judge, it's not just the world either, it's, just, it's our human hearts. We have the tendency to do this. We have the tendency to jump into judgment. We have the tendency to go to a spot where, where we're thinking and, and passing judgment on another person, and then our favoritism comes out of that place. Our favoritism comes out of that place. And we don't judge and we don't play favorites based on the heart. We're playing favorites based on something external, something outside, something that we can observe or see from a distance. That's what it really comes down to. Favoritism contradicts God's standards. In fact, this word, this New Testament Greek word for favoritism is really, it's only in Greek, it's only found in the New Testament. And it's sort of a borrowed word from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament Hebrew. Um, and its, it's it literal meaning is to receive according to the face. To receive according to the face. It's about the external. It's about the outside appearance. And really in the Old Testament, you might see it translated as partiality a lot of times. 
The human standards and the world's standards, they typically they, they, they involve favoritism and it goes against God's heart for people. And he doesn't, he doesn't see us in the same way. And we see it all throughout our culture, though. You know, we think about celebrities. We think about people who are rich and powerful and politicians and athletes and all these people that we put on a pedestal and we give them access and we give them leeway that the rest of us don't get. And generally, it's all based on the external. Again, it's not how God works. It's not how he wants us to work either. Verse 5, James chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Again, this is often how the world works because power is often abused. Not always, often abused though. Power is often abused. And favoritism, and at the end of the day, contradicts God's work. It contradicts how he's working in people's hearts. And when we play favorites, when we uh, kind of bow to the world's standards and we use the external to, to play favorites, we're contradicting the way that God tends to work. Because here's how God tends to work. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We see this in verse 26. Paul's talking, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God's plan often involves using the unlikely people in the world. He he's often plans to use the unlikely people because he wants the glory from that. And when, when people who are not likely to change the world change the world, then God gets the glory. He shines through in those moments. And so oftentimes in God's work, it's not that he's excluding anyone. Everybody has that opportunity to come to him. But a lot of times it's the people who sense that need who do get drawn to him, and he uses them. He uses them. He uses the weak things in the world's eyes to shame the strong things in the world's eyes. And so he has this tendency to go after those who are outcasted maybe by the world and are on the outside looking in when it comes to favoritism. And he uses them for his kingdom. That's what we see. James chapter 2, verse 8. Let's continue on. He says, If you really keep the royal law, Found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do commit adultery but do not commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Imagine getting pulled over. Hopefully this doesn't happen to you, but maybe you get pulled over on the way home from church today, and it's because you're going fast. Usually, the, have you ever noticed this? The police officer almost always asks you, do you know why, you know why I pulled you over? You've got to guess right, all right, in that moment. It's really important. Um, and tell them, be honest. That's my, that's my advice. But, um, you know, if, you, if they pull you over and you say, no, I really have no idea because I stopped at the red light, you know, I, I obeyed the stop sign, I used my blinker, I wasn't texting and driving, all of these different things, but you were speeding, what's going to happen? You're still going to get a ticket, right? 
Sometimes our defense is, but I didn't do all this other bad stuff. Or we might point to things that in our mind is worse. You know, it's like, well, it's way worse if I would have committed murder, or if I would have done this, that, or the other thing. See, I'm, I'm innocent. And God's saying, no, no, no. When you are guilty of breaking part of the law, you've broken the law. That's how it works. And each one of us are guilty of that. And that's why we stand before God with no, no real ability to play favorites or to show favoritism because we all stand before him at his mercy. And that's really what it comes down to. Favoritism contradicts God's law. That's what James is getting at here when he says we've become lawbreakers. Favoritism contradicts God's law. And so when we play favorites, we contradict that law. He doesn't just call it the law at the beginning. He says if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, what's the royal law? The, the royal law is the law that comes from royalty. Now, because we know that, that power can corrupt and be, be used and taken advantage of, as Americans, there's something in us, you know, it goes back into our roots, right? That, that we are not big fans of royalty, kings and stuff like that. This is not how we operate here, right? It's a representative, representative uh, system that we have. And so we don't have, we don't have sort of the, the royal law, like it's a decree and it, it's as the king says. But as we look at scripture, we see that that's who, that's who God is, but he's a perfect king. Here in America, we like our kings like, where we like our talking animals in Disney movies, and that's it. Um, we don't want them ruling over us. But God is a perfect king. He's a perfect king. It's just, it's the same way when we talk about God as a father. Sometimes that, that's incomplete, right? Because no earthly father is perfect. But he can give us glimpses of who that heavenly father is. And sometimes when we say stuff, and is, when the Bible says stuff about earthly father, depending on your situation, that can be tough. That can be tough. That can be painful. Or it can be, it can be good. It can be a positive thing. But either way, we have these glimpses of God. We have to see that he is the one who perfects these analogies. He's not below them. He's above them. And so when we talk about God as our, our royal king and giving us a royal law, man, as we see that and as we understand that and as we experience it, we see that he is perfect. His law is just and good and that he is to be trusted completely. And we see the, this law at work in the Old Testament Leviticus chapter 19 has a couple of verses, starting verse 15, and then we'll skip to 18. Verse 15 says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. Judge your neighbor fairly. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That, that last part there, that, that love your neighbor as yourself, that may have been one of Jesus' favorite lines in the Old Testament. He knew the whole thing. He knew it really well. But he talked a lot about that. Love your neighbor as yourself. He's got some parables, some of his most famous parables that are about loving your neighbor as yourself. Loving your, and then expanding that definition of who is your neighbor to include people that are not like you, people that don't like you, people who maybe before you didn't like, People who would consider themselves to be your enemies. He says, that, that is your neighbor. That is your neighbor. That's who you're called to love. And so we see this in, throughout the Old Testament. He also tells his people to, to watch out for those uh, who, are, who are moving in from other nations and to treat them fairly, treat them kindly, to watch out for the poor. He has command after command about this. Love your neighbor. Treat people without partiality. And that goes both ways. 
Toward the poor or toward the great? And usually we experience that toward the great. We see Jesus repeating this law. Like like I mentioned, he says that about loving your neighbor. But as he talks about the heart and what that plays out to be in Matthew chapter 25, he talks about separating people at the end of time between the sheep and the goats. And this this is the characteristic that's going to divide those who follow Jesus and who have a relationship with him and those who don't. The the, the thing that's going to characterize those who have a relationship with him is that they're going to love other people, that they're not going to show partiality. It says, the king will say, the king again, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, and take your inheritance in the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And they're like, when, when do we do this? I don't remember seeing you in any of these circumstances. And he answers back to them in verse 40. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So when we walk through life and we don't show favoritism, we don't show partiality, we are, we are demonstrating our love for Christ. Because he says to us, the greatest command is to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love people, to love people. Um, and to treat them like we would want to be treated, love them like we love ourselves. And so we are called to something higher, and when we fail to do that, it contradicts God's, God's law. Verse 12, James says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. We talked about that last week. This is a law which feels restrictive. It feels like something we don't want a part of. It's because it's a law. We think that Freedom comes when there's no restrictions, but that's not true. He says, this is the law that brings freedom. This is the law that brings to us freedom. Because when we are living by the right law, by the right code, but when we follow after the right king, we're not enslaved, we're free. We're free because we're doing what we were designed to do. All right, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I love that last, night, that last line. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's like you're playing rock, paper, scissors, and one of them wins every time, no matter what. You know, Rock, paper, scissors, except you don't have to make a choice. But here's the thing about us. Everyone in, in the room is now playing rock, paper, scissors. Give me your eyes. <laughs> it's not just you. There were people down here, too. Don't worry. All right? As, as, we're, as we think about that, rock, paper, scissors... It's like we have the tendency, it's like we know rock's going to win every time, but we just get tempted and we throw paper, right? Um, Mercy triumphs over judgment every time. Mercy wins every time. Put another way, if we want to stick with the same format with all the rest of the points, favoritism contradicts God's mercy. Mercy wins every time. But somehow we're like, you know what, on this round, I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to throw judgment. And we just get tempted into that again and again. It's something with our, our, the human heart. We compare, we, we're tempted, we see something, and, and we jump. We cannot, even though we know, intellectually, we know mercy triumphs over judgment every time. We'll throw judgment. We'll mix it in. And that's not right. That's not where God wants us to be. And the reason we can know that, we, we can know it from Christ's teaching, but we can also know it from his life. Here's what he said. 
in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Two quotes from the Sermon on the Mount. We've been talking about James. I really think he just dove into his brother's teaching after he became a believer um, when he saw the resurrected Christ because he did not follow his brother as Lord when he was doing his earthly ministry. He didn't follow, become a follower to, of him until he revealed himself as a re- the resurrected um, God-man after his crucifixion. And then he became a follower of Jesus. And I think at that point, he just dove in, he jumped into what his brother taught and reflected back on the things he may have heard him say because they were in the same family. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Isn't that true? Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, it says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. So we use a standard, and we usually use a different standard for other people than we use for ourselves. We want to be given grace and mercy. We want to be looked at favorably. And with others, we can be harsh. We can be critical. We can, we can look at them and uh, quickly make judgments on their person, on their character, on their appearance. And then we can play favorites as a result of that. In, in Matthew chapter 18, there's the, a parable called, uh, about the unmerciful servant. And there's this servant who owes his master a bunch of money. He gets called in and he begs for mercy. He says, please, I can't pay it. Please don't throw me in jail. Like, I'll never be able to get this. It's, a, it's just a crazy amount of money. And the master says, you know what? I forgive your debt. Go, your, your debt's clear. Your debt is cleared. And he goes out, and on his way out from this meeting with his master, where he is shown tremendous mercy, where he's given a new chance, a new lease on life, he runs into another servant, a fellow servant, who owes him a very small amount of money. And it says he seizes him by the neck, and he says, give me this money now, or have you thrown in jail? Because I can't pay, please have mercy on me. And my family says, nope, have him thrown into prison until he can pay it back. And the master hears of this and goes, you should have had mercy. You should have had mercy on your, on your fellow servant because I've had mercy on you. When we've received mercy and when we've truly understood it and come to grips with what it means, we can extend it to other people. Now we're broken and we're sinners. We're going to mess up. We're going to make those mistakes. We're not going to be perfect. And sometimes we'll need to get called out. Sometimes somebody will need to point something out in our lives and we need to be responsive in those moments. And as those things get revealed to us by someone else or by God, by spirit, we need to have soft hearts and realize, man, maybe I have not been showing mercy to a fellow servant, even though my king has shown me great mercy, tremendous mercy, life-changing mercy. It all comes from how Jesus treated us, how he gave his life for us, how he gave us so much mercy we could never measure it. He, he forgave a debt that we had no ability to ever repay. And he forgave it. He set us free from that. And it's because of that that we should not show favoritism. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And when it's real in our lives, it's something we can extend to other people. People who are well-loved can love someone else. People who have been shown grace and shown mercy can show grace and mercy to those around. And so when we, have a, when we have a mercy problem, we have a favoritism problem, quite frankly, what we really need to do is spend more time reflecting on the grace and the mercy that our king has had on us. 
And then we'll be released from that. Let's pray. So we thank God for, thank Jesus for what he's done for us. Oh, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to give your life as a ransom. That you set us free from our sin. Jesus, we thank you that we're no longer slaves to sin. That we can be released. We thank you that you did not show favoritism towards us. Against people in any way. And that you released us from your judgment in a great act of mercy. God, give us the ability to completely trust in that. And as a result of being all in for that mercy, that we would be able to extend it to people around us, whether we think they deserve it or not, whether they ask for it or not. Jesus, you paid it all for us. Help us to live out of that place as we reflect on that. In Jesus' name.